The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. This evening, the sermon's title is uh, Christ's Birth According to Scripture. And I quoted that text to you because according to Scripture there in Matthew chapter 1, and you can go ahead and turn there, Uh, is going to make a point to reveal to us that the birth of Christ was fulfilled according to Scripture. So, when we think of the Scripture that was fulfilled, it was Isaiah 7.14. And Isaiah being a prophet of God and prophesying of the grace that has come to us, he inquired and searched carefully Searching what and what manner of time the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. He did this according to the Spirit of Christ in him. In other words, Isaiah prophesied the coming of Christ and the Spirit of Christ in Isaiah motivated Isaiah to long to know what we now know of Christ's work and reward. So tonight, let's look at Matthew 1. 22 through 25, and see how the Spirit of God fulfills His own prophecy through Isaiah in verses 22 through 23, or 25. Namely, that Christ's birth fulfills Scripture. Then, second, let's look at how God fulfills His Word through the agency of others. Namely, Joseph obeyed what the, the angel of the Lord commanded. So God fulfills His Word through the angel, through the dream, to his servant Joseph, and then in the naming of his son. So God fulfills his word by many means. Both points highlight the faithfulness of God and his sovereignty. So the main point is Christ, brothers, sisters, hearers, is able to save your soul from your sins, just as his name indicates, because his birth fulfilled prophecy. It's a sign to tell you that God, in His sovereign power and in His faithful immutability, for those who put their trust in this one, they will not be ashamed. Also, the main application is, again, trust Christ for your salvation and worship Him in faith. Your faith should be bolstered by this sign and this fulfillment of prophecy. That being said, let's read Matthew chapter 1. 
And I'm going to read from verse 18 to give context of this section. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had, been, she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So first point for this evening is from verse 22 and 23, Christ's birth fulfills Scripture. First, Christ's birth fulfills Scripture. So keep in mind that prophecy fulfilled is a test of divinity. Turn with me to Isaiah 41. And I'm going to read it from verse 21. This is a section about the futility of false gods and idols. The idols, the factory-making idols of our heart where we come up with false ideas of God and false gods and things that we seem and aim to get what only God can give. Peace, joy, a clear conscience. So he says about idols, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them, and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So when you see Scripture fulfilled, one of the things that God is revealing through that is His name, His sovereignty, that you can rest assured that what is being fulfilled is from God, your Creator. And whatever it reveals, you are to believe with all your heart. And namely in our text back in Matthew, it's that Christ has come in the virgin womb of Mary. In Matthew 1, and 23, the Spirit reveals that Christ's birth fulfilled Isaiah seven fourteen. So let's look at the prophecy more closely in context so that we may understand better what is intended by its fulfillment. So, first of all, from Matthew, if you go back to Matthew, from Matthew we know that the fulfillment of Scripture is that of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The salvation of God's people from their sins is conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. 
That's very plain from the text. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated with us. And that is considered a fulfillment, Matthew says in the beginning of verse 22. He says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled. All this. So when he's thinking back, he starts off in verse 21. He says, now. He just, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he says the genealogy. Now chapter 1, verse 18, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Then he goes through Joseph and Mary. He goes through the angel. He goes through what the angel revealed and what he shall be named. And then he says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken. So whatever we see in the Old Testament, we know very explicitly and very clearly that God intended divinely, knowing the beginning from the end, that that revelation there in the Old Testament was a revelation and a prophecy of some kind of this fulfillment. So in the prophecy though, there are three things which are a virgin pregnancy, the fact that it would be a divinely appointed son, bear a son, and that his name would be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. Let's look together in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. So if you will remember in Isaiah 6, just by reference, that Isaiah is called and commissioned. He, he receives a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And in the mercy of God recognizing he's a man of unclean lips and having uh, his sin purged, the Lord says, who shall I send? And he says, I'll go. And then, he's, and, and then the Lord gives him his commission. He says, go tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, Isaiah lest they see with their spiritual eyes, lest they hear with their spiritual ears, lest they understand with their heart and return and be healed. Isaiah is commissioned with a ministry of declaring the word of God that will result in a hardening of the hearts of his people. A very hard ministry. And then Isaiah said, Lord, how long? How long will I do this? And the Lord said, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man and the land is utterly desolate. So what we should expect as we go through this next section is something to that effect. And it starts right here in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but it could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. First of all, for context, I want you to hear something about Ahaz. Ahaz was a king at that time of Judah, the two tribes in the south, and he was a wicked king. 
It says in Second Chronicles 28, 1 through 4, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, the ten tribes to the north. He walked in their ways. And he made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his own children in the fire. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. So Ahaz is a wicked king, and he's ruling at this time. And it says here that, if you look, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, have come together, and they went up to Israel to make war. Those two, those two kings and their land is north of Jerusalem. Why they say go up is because Jerusalem's on a hill. So they're coming south, but going up a hill to attack Jerusalem and to overtake it. But they do not prevail because of the Lord. However, they were weakened by it. And you could go read more about that in Second Chronicles 28. But now they're coming back again. And it says, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. Well, Ephraim... Its allotment, if you look in a map, is very close to Jerusalem. So they have gathered together and now they've come very close to Jerusalem. And they're getting, they're getting word of it. King Ahaz is getting word of it, right? So his heart and the heart of the people are moved like trees in the wind. That means that they are terrified. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz. Ahaz won't pray, Ahaz won't come to the prophet, but the Lord sends a prophet to him. Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, which means remnant shall return. So the Lord is saying, Isaiah, take your son with you, and I'm going to make him an object lesson. When he comes, when you go up to talk to Ahaz, your son is going, his very name is going to communicate something to Ahaz. It's going to communicate to Ahaz that God will not let this area, his land, be overrun. And there will be a time when he will restore it to the faithful. So at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and, said, and say to him, take heed and be quiet. And really, a better way to translate that from what I've learned is rest. Rest. Be at peace in the midst of a brink of war. Be at peace. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, uh, they're not on fire, they're just smoking in stubs. Meaning they've lost their heat. For the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God. So the Lord is essentially saying, Ahaz, do not be afraid in a time when you see war coming. Trust me. Believe in me. I am here, right? And then he says, 
they're not going to have any heat. And then he says this, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, their plans. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. With 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. It was a, prophe- a prophecy made by, I think, either Amos or Obed about Ephraim's being broken, and I believe that's what reference because it fits the timetable, which at this time when Isaiah's given it, it's already been years in progress, so it's coming sooner than 65 years from the day he's given it, but it's a reminder. And the Lord is telling Ahaz, it's not going to come to pass. And when he says the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin, it's basically like saying the head of France is Paris. Uh, the head of America's whatever, Washington, D.C. or um, and, and, one, and what that's communicating is they have their limits that I've set. They're not going to expand outside of the limits that I've given them. Their blessings, their spoil, their profits are going to remain with them so that it will not be a people, it will be broken. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son, Then he says this, Ahaz, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. In other words, your only hope for standing against this onslaught is to trust me. Otherwise, you will not be established as a a, a kingdom. So, now comes the Emmanuel prophecy. Moreover, the Lord again spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. In other words, ask anything as a sign so that you'll know that what I'm telling you is true. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And it sounds to some initially as humble or pious. It's not. Faith should say with a a commandment to ask, to ask greatly. So he's, his sin of unbelief is getting exposed by the Lord promising to bless him and ask for a sign. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? It's a rebuke. You were wearying men with your sin, and now you're wearying God with your unbelief. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's not going to be a sign you request. It's not going to be a sign someone else requests. The Lord will come up with it himself. He will give you a sign, Isaiah, or Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we know that sign is Christ's birth. That one we know. Now, the next question is, is there a sign for Ahaz in an immediate context? Or not? And this is not an easy text to interpret in this context. Without Isaiah and the Holy Spirit showing that the Scripture had been fulfilled from this text with the birth of Christ, uh, and you didn't have that revelation, you would not so easily be able to predict that that's what it was referencing. So is there uh, an immediate referent, right? And I don't want to spend the 
a long time trying to go through all the things, but there's two major interpretations. One is this is typology, and two, it's predictive prophecy. If it's typology, that means this is foretelling of a real son in Ahaz's day that will be born and he will be a son, and that that son that is born is also a type of the anti-type, which will be Christ, and what we see is it being fulfilled in Christ as well. Predictive prophecy says, no, it wouldn't be typology. There's no immediate referent. It's strictly a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Both have some arguments for their sides. I currently am at predictive prophecy. I know that differs from one of the previous pastors that was up here preaching. But that's where I'm at. And the reason why is that God does that. He did it in Isaiah 5. He does it in Isaiah 9 where he prophesies that the kingdom shall rest on his shoulders and he shall be called mighty God. Here he's called God with us. He will be called mighty God, wonderful counselor. God prophesies in Isaiah many times of the coming Messiah as a direct predicted prophecy without no typology or reference. Also, something that lends itself to this argument that is predicted prophecy is it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign that you is plural. So it's to the house of David, I'm going to give you all a sign. The Lord himself will give the house of David a sign. And it's already a sign that all of Israel anticipates. Not Maybe not specifically what's said here, but everybody's anticipating the Messiah. So predictive prophecy would look at that as what God is saying is as a rebuke to Ahaz, you will not seek a sign, I'm not going to give you one. But I'm going to give a sign. And it will be in when, when the Christ comes. And he will be a sign for the people that I will restore. Uh, near fulfillment. So what that helps with is also virgin birth. Because there's only one virgin birth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other virgin birth. Doesn't matter what anybody says. So if there's a near fulfillment and we're saying typology, then we got to make that word virgin mean two different senses. That's a little bit of a difficulty there. So predictive prophecy has the, the ability to say, no, there's just one fulfillment. And that word virgin can mean, uh, it means Alma in the Hebrew, it can mean young woman or virgin. However, when it means young maiden or young woman, it's with reference only to a marriable age. It does not preclude virginity, but implies virginity. It ceases to become this when pregnant. So they would not use Alma, which is in our text, for a woman who is pregnant. So it gets used for virgins. The other word, though, that does strictly and often get used in Hebrew for virgin, which was not used, is betula, which connotes clear virginity. But that word no longer is used to speak of a virgin woman when she becomes married. 
And Betula would not be the best referent for Mary because she was betrothed. So uh, Alma does not preclude virginity. It can mean that. So it does have some possibilities of meaning young woman, which lends itself to the typology. But when the Septuagint translators translated that word word into Greek, they chose the Greek word which was exclusively meaning virgin. So they understood it to mean virgin. If you take it as a typology in the near sense, you can do some benefit from uh, trying to come up with some consistency with the verses there, right thereafter, and uh, you get the sense of Ahaz is getting a sign still, right? Um, but who is the child? It's not Hezekiah, which is uh, Ahaz's son. It's, uh, he's already like nine years old. And it's not my, uh, if it's Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which is going to be the child of Isaiah and his wife, his wife is already his wife. He's already got a son. She's not a virgin. She's not a Betula or a Alma in the normal sense of the use. So you have a problem there. But if you go predictive prophecy, the, where you really run into the problems is the verses right after where it says, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose good. I think that that has a parallel with Hebrews 2, where it says that the Lord would suffer. Where he would bear with their suffering. And when he came into this world, he was not... Curds and honey means it's unprepared. It's just what the land has available. It's like a land that's desolate. It's just what's growing on the trees and on the land. That's all people got. They don't have a way and a means to cook anymore. So in a curds and honey in a desolate time, well, we have to ask, did Christ, if it's only referencing Christ, can we say that he came into a time like that? Well, there was an established city, but in what means did he enter the world? It says he was from Nazareth. Remember the birth narrative and the family that he was born into. Remember, too, the sufferings of Christ. And in a sense, he came into a wilderness. Uh, For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So I capitalize that in here. Uh, The predicted prophecy would just say the focus is not on even the child. The article isn't necessary. But it's a shift right there, saying um, Ahaz, before a child learns moral right and wrong, which is about 12, when they would Jews would put a child into a category of being able to uh, come into manhood. So in about 12 years, so to speak, uh, is what you have that the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people in your father's house. So instead of a sign saying he's going to restore, right here he's leading up to, you only got 12 years. So that's consistent with the shift of saying that the Lord asked for a sign, you didn't give it, so now he's going to focus on the future. 
I don't want us to get lost in that, and I feel like I've already eaten up some time there. But the point I wanted to show you was, what was the purpose of the sign? It was to bolster the faith of Ahaz and give him confidence that he can rest and be at peace and that he knows God is his Savior. God will restore. God will protect. He will shepherd and be a rock according to his word. It was intended to bolster his faith. And we know that that has a reference to the future because Matthew says it's fulfilled. So consider the birth of Christ. God is communicating through that to believe. Trust Him. And not with a reference of a northern enemy coming at the gates of Jerusalem, but the enemies of your soul. Sin, the flesh, the world, the devil. These things that will send you to the grave and to hell. He says, trust in the Son. He is a sign. The virgin birth is a sign to you that if you trust Him, you have no reason to fear or be like a tree waving in the wind, trembling at the consequences of sin and the presence of sin. Because He is Emmanuel, God with us. And there's an emphasis on God there in the Hebrew. In other words, you shall name him, he shall be named God with us. That's another thing that makes me want to say predictive prophecy because it's, it's not common that a Jew would call their child God. Last, Christ's birth was obeyed. In keeping with his, divine, his God-given character, Joseph took her to be his wife and not put her away, believing God. However, he did not know her intimately until she gave birth. Having received that revelation through the dream by the angel of the Lord, Joseph, being a just man and an example to us, because those who are righteous people in the Bible are given to us that we might imitate by faith, Hebrews says. And what we see with Joseph is... Not only was he wanting to put her away secretly and be merciful to the time and great trial, but the way, how does he respond to the revelation given to him by God? He responds without being troubled anymore, unlike Ahaz. He's not afraid anymore to take her. He takes her. He also uh, waits to know her according to the word, and he also names her according to the word. So he's a good example as a side note of what faith looks like when it comes in this account. So the main point again was Christ, brothers and sisters, is able to save your soul from your sins because his birth fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled scripture authoritatively enjoins you to hear the revelation. And what I mean is biblically here. That means obey it. Trust in it and obey it. Fulfilled scripture authoritatively commands you, enjoins you to hear, to trust and obey. Whatever it may reference. In this case, the sign and the prophecy fulfilled reveals that Jesus Christ is as God's word prophesied, God with us. 
trust that God is with us. Trust Him. Obey Him. And the main application is that. Trust Christ for your salvation and serve Him with faith and sure hope. Faith, last point. Remember, brothers and and sisters, children of God, that saving faith is not sluggish, but is a sure, it, it grows as it's exercised in assurance. And it's based on objective, propositional, inerrant Word of God. It's not on a blind notion. It's true. It's more true, Peter says, than what my own eyes saw when I saw the glory of the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. God said it. So we have the witness of Matthew carried by the Spirit in Scripture of the birth, divine birth of Christ and that He is God with us. He has added to Himself humanity for your salvation. Therefore, trust Him and obey Him. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, help us, Lord, to grow in saving faith. Uh, I pray that Your name your persons would become more acquainted to us, that we would grow in an intimate knowledge of you through the means of grace, namely your word. We praise you for your word, Lord. We praise you for your mercy, and we praise you for your Son. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would grant grace that we would uh, employ what we hear in our lives. Amen.